This is the Yahoo Finance Podcast. The following is from our All Market Summit held here in New York City right in Times Square on October 25th, 2017. Enjoy. All right. Thanks, everybody, so much for joining us. Um, As Andy mentioned, of course, at the top, uh, we've seen a lot change in the last few months in markets. Yesterday, of course, another huge day on Wall Street. We're at record highs. So now the question is, of course, what happens next in markets? Uh, Really excited for this panel here. Uh, So let's get right to it. Um, Tom, I want to start with you. Uh, We were talking, or you were talking, rather, back in September, looking for a little bit of a pullback in stocks. We've not seen that materialize. Um, Your price target for the end of this year is a little bit below where we are now. I think about 100 points on the S&P. Um, so what's your view going out into the end of this year and then maybe the next six and 12 months beyond that? Um, well, I think markets have done a lot better than I think even the optimists have thought this year. And I think it's, it's grounded in both good fundamentals. You know, there's reflation taking place and it's helping earnings. But I think an equally important driver has been this, the search for carry, that interest rates are so low, especially outside the U.S., that it's actually causing investors to buy risky assets like equities. The reason we're not expecting markets to necessarily be much higher into year end, even though there's seasonal strength, is that I think we've reached the limits of, of how carry is working. That we've, you know, two thirds of bonds outside the US now have a negative yield, for instance, and European high yield is now priced for negative default rates. So I think as, as central banks normalize, we have to think about sort of how that search for carry trade evolves. Yeah, so um, Tom touched a little bit on fundamentals. Michelle, I want to talk um, about the fundamentals of the economy, uh, maybe sort of how that supports stock market valuations, how it doesn't, um, what you're seeing both in the U.S. and then, of course, internationally, because that's really been the big story this year is synchronized global growth. No, you're exactly right. Well, first of all, as Tom mentioned, the U.S. fundamentals have remained very solid. And, And I have to say, I've been encouraged by how just how strong growth has remained, and and strong in a relative term, of course, but how healthy the economy has remained, even though, for example, the tax cuts that we were hoping uh, would help to stimulate growth in in 2017 has been slow to materialize. Even as those, you know, all of that's been dragged out, companies in particular have been very engaged. They've been, you know, they've stepped up again in terms of CapEx spending. Hiring has held up better than I think anybody, you know, would have thought at this point in the cycle. So the fundamentals are uh, in the U.S. are very positive. And then as, as you touched upon, Miles, the the global story is actually probably where, the, that's probably been even the, the bigger surprise, the fact that the global economy is on much, much stronger footing, certainly than we saw in 2016, and, and I think than anyone expected in 2017. We haven't seen this kind of synchronized growth really to date in the, in the cycle, and I think that that's what sets the stage, as, as sort of Tom mentioned, for the fact that central banks around the world now, not just the Fed, but others are, are beginning to really question the timing and the speed at which policy should be normalized. Yeah, so, you know, we're talking a little bit about um, global growth, and we've got earnings growth being strong. You know, markets have been elevated uh, by an, on a number of metrics for, quite, for some time. Um, Richard, I know you've talked about a balanced risk-taking approach uh, at J.P. Morgan. Um, so could you sketch that out a little bit and sort of, you know, things have changed, again, quite a bit, I think, on the valuation front over the last 18 months, but a lot of people haven't changed the way they've discussed markets. So what are you, you know, what are you talking about with clients right now? 
fundamentally, I think that the toughest decision for me is kind of separating short-term tactical trading money and long-term fundamental investing. Uh, I'm a long-term fundamental investor, so uh, I manage for our private clients $290 billion of wealth. Um, we're long-term investors. I think the diversification aspect for me is much more around not overreaching for risk. So Tom's comment of equity valuations versus high yield, we own a little bit of each of them, uh, not too much of any of them. And to Michelle's comment, just in terms of being a global investor, feel really, really good about what we're seeing in terms of the global economy. Um, the punchline, nothing's cheap. Like, that's the bad news here. So how you take risk in terms of a long-term investor for us is still much more positioned on a little bit overweight equity. I'm a little bit overweight in terms of some value, some financials, some technology, some healthcare. Those all feel like consensus right now, so that worries me. And then from a credit market perspective, I think it's really playing off the default risk. So Tom's comment on negative uh, default expectations in Europe. We're going to run something like a 1% default in the US high yield right now. But I'll, I'll wrap it up by saying I'm back to where you started the conversation. The context of fundamentals are still very strong. So biggest challenge I have with my clients is managing return expectations, not the fear of a break in the market. Yeah, but you know, let's go back to your clients. I mean, there's a lot of cliches that go around about this market. Uh, one of the most pervasive, I think, is that it's the most hated bull market uh, in quite a while. So yeah, even though returns have been um, you know, really good, especially, again, over that last 12-month period, um, how are you balancing, I think, uh, perhaps maybe a negative sentiment in the face of you know, a pretty strong return? The return in context. So 12-month returns incredibly strong, but roll that back two and three years. We had two years where markets went nowhere. So we played a little bit of a catch up as a function of earnings growth and greater stability. I think the real surprise, and Michelle is the expert on this one, is lack of inflation. So when you talk about you know, what happens on central banks and relative valuations, in a world where I'm running at one and a half to two percent inflation, I can easily support uh, relative valuations that are where they are today, and provocative to Tom, a little bit higher predicated on earnings holding. Uh, earnings, we're going to see third quarter probably 5 to 7% in the US, so that's good and that's constructive. We need to see that again next year to keep markets as well supported as they've done. Yeah, so we're talking about um, inflation. Uh, Michelle, I want to touch on your view for the Fed. Uh, so I think you know, the market thinks December is a no-brainer. Um, you know, next year, yeah, right? Next year, uh, their dot plot says about three or four rate hikes. Um, but inflation doesn't really seem to be accelerating. So how do you kind of square that circle? Because you know, Yellen has said a number of things, and basically everybody has a take on how inflation and the, the rate outlook kind of comes together. Well, I guess a couple of things. I myself um, have been surprised by the fact that inflation has stayed as calm and cool as it, as it has been, although I would agree with Fed Chair Yellen that it's been, the slowing's been exacerbated by some one-off factors that are, are have sort of, we've since moved past. So um, I do think that inflation and, and wages will gradually head up. I agree with the Fed's conviction that over the medium term they'll get back to a 2% target. I think it's really um, interesting that, that the Fed chair herself has stayed the course, as you said, signaling that it's going to still be appropriate to hike rates in December three times in 2018, even though the inflation news has been disappointing. I think what you see are central banks, I believe rightfully, beginning to, to look more broadly at the, the possibility that low levels of interest rates, levels that are below 
where you would want to see them at this point in the cycle given fundamentals are are not necessarily generating higher consumer price inflation but are generating higher asset price inflation and looking more broadly then and you look at how easy financial conditions are most particularly you can see why i think this fed is um, is very uh, at least the fed leadership i think continues to be committed to to thinking that normalizing rates is, is the right policy. So that's that's my expectation, and I do think it's the, um, the, the right course of action. I actually think that the Fed will continue uh, with this once a quarter sort of action all through 18, so I've even got more rate hikes than the Fed does, but clearly that's way more than the markets. And I think that that's, you know, we're all waiting anxiously on the, the next, the announcement of the next Fed chair, um, and all the names, I mean, if it's not gonna be Fed Chair Yellen, whether it's Powell or Warsh or Taylor, I think all of those individuals are going to be just like Yellen, committed to staying on this normalization path. Okay, so you don't see a fundamental change based on a leadership change at the Fed? I actually think that the approach that the Fed will take um, going forward is going to be different based on the change in the leadership, assuming it's not um, Janet Yellen. I think that the individuals that are going to be, uh, that are being talked about are all, uh, all have a very different view of the Fed, that the Fed should be uh, much more disciplined in its approach. I think they, they believe the Fed should be less interventionist, if you will, with respect to the markets. So I actually, um, I do think that the sort of the Fed's reaction function, if you will, is going to change as a result of the new leadership. I don't think that that means rates will go higher faster, but I do think it means, again, a commitment to staying the course, whereas in the past we've seen the Fed um, at times be quick to back off. And that's what the market is currently betting on, that this Fed says it's going to do three hikes next year, but it won't be able to. And I think that under the new leadership, it's more likely they will indeed stick with the plan. Yeah, now, Tom, something that Michelle touched on in terms of the composition of the Fed um, and how it you know, looks at financial markets, so it you know, comes to something that you've talked about a lot, which is regulation and the possibility for less regulation really being a catalyst for markets here. I think that was part of the crap portfolio that was back yeah. in February. Um, can you talk a little bit about your view on you know, how regulation has evolved this year and maybe you know, thinking the next three years of the Trump administration, how that might play into markets and, and valuations. Yeah. yeah explain uh, that for us. Please. Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I think one of the things we do have to remember when we look at this year is that businesses have really liked this administration. And I think it's evident in the improvement in confidence, but it's also because there's actually been deregulation. You know, executive orders have been the primary means for the last eight years of regulatory creep and funding of department of the DOE and EPA, and I think that, that these have been impediments to business expansion. So I think it continues to be a huge tailwind. I think it really favors uh, three industries, though, manufacturing, financials, and energy, because they've seen the biggest jump in regulations over the past three years. So, you know, I think that's important. Um, but I think it ties into maybe a broader question, which is, you know, I think if, if the Fed is shifting stance, especially if we get new leadership, I, I think it points to higher interest rates. And I think that's maybe the environment investors need to, to really start to put into their calculus. Yeah, now, um, Richard, I want to talk about uh, just kind of 
what keeps you know your clients up at night? What keeps you up at night? Because I think you know the higher rate environment um, that Tom and Michelle are alluding to is something that many investors have never seen really in their tenure. It's been a 30, 40 year bond bull market, however you want to um, you know kind of square that. But uh, what's something that you're looking at, and what's kind of what's your worry? Is it geopolitical? Is it rates? Is it central banks? Is it something else? Geopolitical, yes. And I say this with humility: I can't invest based on a twitch of left tail risk from geopolitics. So we're aware of it. We pay attention to it. But it doesn't really influence fundamentally how I allocate capital. And from a perspective just in terms of getting it right with clients, this sounds very cliche, but, but I say this all the time to our clients and also our advisors. The, the single most important conversation we can have with a client is getting the suitability discussion right at the get-go. Because uh, picture back to 2007, 2008, the number of people for long-term money that into that cycle decided that they weren't a conservative investor but became a growth investor. The market broke, they rode that growth investment all the way down and then came back and said somewhere around 2010, you know what, I'm, I'm a conservative investor after all. It's keeping our clients invested in the risk profile that they're comfortable with. There isn't a magic answer on that. The, the broader dynamic, and I guess this goes back to Michelle's comments a little bit and Tom's on rates. So we're all fixated on the US. And, and let's say we can bounce between 25 and 3% on 10-year treasuries. Where I don't think that 10s in the US in term structure is going to run away from us is because the rest of the world is still fundamentally easing. So I've got boons in Germany trading at 55 or 60 basis points. Target this year, maybe we get to 80. There's a natural sense of gravity that's going to keep holding the US cycle and term structure lower for a little bit longer until we actually see inflation. So I'm probably a little bit more bullish, a small b, on the Fed not moving three times next year. But I think some of it's a function of transition of not only head and vice chair. Uh, we've got three or four additional seats on the Fed that are going to turn over. And I'm just not seeing the impetus in the macro cycle that I think the Fed's going to have to be forced to be more proactive. So that's still a reasonable environment. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, Michelle. No, I was just going to also kind of speak to the fact that even with my aggressive, what seems to be aggressive uh, interest rate outlook, I, I don't really see that that poses a risk to the ongoing U.S. economic expansion. You know, we talk a lot about the fact that this is about the Fed taking their foot off the gas, not putting their foot on the brake. We've seen the Fed take action raising interest rates 100 basis points and the economy has continued actually to, to perform very well ultimate you know and, and we're talking about rates that are still by historical standards very low so I, I actually think that at this very gradual pace of normalization in the long run it, it, everyone is more well served by it the last thing you want is a situation where the Fed overstays their welcome and ends up creating a situation where you've got asset valuations that are not really justified. It's speaking to like, as Tom said, that people are, are chased, are being forced into riskier assets that fundamentals don't underpin. So I, I, I actually think that the best thing the Federal Reserve can be doing is to kind of continue on this normalization path that in the long run, that creates an environment that's much more sustainable on, on, on both, whether we're talking about financial markets or the economy. Uh, quickly, who do you think is going to be the next Fed chair? I tell you, I always thought Kevin Warsh was the most, uh, made the most sense to me. I 
was not actually a believer that uh, Jay Powell brought a lot more to the table in the Fed chair versus the what Randy Quarles, who was nominated. But it certainly seems as if um, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has been making a strong case for Powell. I, it seems like Trump likes Taylor. So this idea that you may have a pairing of of, of Taylor and, and Powell, um, you know, I can't discount that. But I, that I would have actually thought all along that Warsh was the most likely candidate. Well, yesterday we heard the, the show of hands yeah. at the Taylor, so uh, we'll see. Um, but sticking with Washington, um, Tom, I want to talk a little bit about what's really been the uh, story of the year, I guess, uh, which is tax reform or the lack thereof tax reform, what tax reform would or wouldn't do to markets. Um, there's kind of two views here. One is that tax reform is priced in and that if it doesn't pass, it'll be very bad. The other is that it's not priced in at all and that um, actually getting tax reform through really a tax cut would sort of send stocks to the moon. Um, are you kind of banking on one or the other? Do you have a view on whether stocks have or have not priced that in? And do you have expectations for tax reform in 2018 or, or later on in this cycle? Um, I mean, I think we come out in the middle on this whole tax reform picture because one, it, our policy strategist, Tom Block, thinks uh, the probability is quite high. Um, it's important to the Republicans, and I think there's real broad agreement and a lot of progress made but the bigger question, and, and you asked it, is, is this going to be positive for both economic growth and for markets? Uh, the reason we're kind of more balanced on that is, one, you have to remember, when you cut tax rates for businesses, you're raising the after-tax cost of debt. So it's essentially an incentive to delever. So I think what you have is an issue where I think a lot of corporate America suddenly feels debt-heavy. Um, but more importantly, you know, when you cut taxes, you're giving cash to all industries in America, which means you're providing capital to businesses that should be failing. So I think one of the issues is we, you know, Washington is not picking winners and losers by doing a tax cut. They're just giving industries that you think should actually decapitalize more money. Um, so I think from an earnings perspective, it's helpful, but I think there's an allocation of capital that we have to think about. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. Sorry, just on debt, because we've debated this a lot on my team. Um, Net debt is not scary in the US. So absolute levels of debt have been rising, but so have cash levels. So I'm a lot more interested in what happens with regard to the repatriation of cash and tax benefits around it. And then the deductibility of interest expenses. Those are gonna be so much more important in terms of what I think happens to broad debt. Um, debt is not unstable. It, it looks extreme at a gross level, but if you, if you look at the corporate sector, there is a reason that credit spreads are as tight as they are. It's troubling, so there's not as much upside in terms of further spread compression, um, but there's certainly an environment that fundamentally, I think, deserves it. Yeah, can you talk a little more about the deductibility or the possibility there would be a change in that process? Because I think it's something that gets thrown around, but it's yes. like, what exactly would that mean for a corporation that's raising debt or looking to raise cash, and how would they, how would they do that? Can they or can they not deduct it from expenses? So does it come out ahead of taxation base for them uh, from a government perspective? And I was going to kid Tom, if you have insight into Washington and tax reform when we're done, let's spend half an hour talking about that. <laughs> like healthcare, it's another third rail in Washington. So we've kind of had a view that all of these pieces are being talked about, but within the constraint of what Washington can actually accomplish with some consensus, it's still a long time in terms of getting it to go. 
the issue ends up being midterm elections next year. So there's a political motivation and impetus to do something. The debate we keep having, and it was the question you were originally asked, so what's it worth in earnings next year if we get something? Low level, three to 4% earnings growth. High level for your moon comment, 10. You're not going to get the moon, right? We're going to get three or four, and it's going to be the difference in an S&P plus earnings and dividends of an 8% return or a 10% return, base case. Yeah, now Michelle, it sounds like uh, your general view on the U.S. economy is that all of this stuff we're talking about wouldn't fundamentally change the outlook uh, for growth. Um, but is there a scenario in which that would be the case? Well, I certainly, if we were able to pass the kind of broad um, sweeping tax reform that, that's been proposed, I do think you can make the, the case that the outlook would improve more meaningfully. My expectation is they know they have to get something done, and in order to get something done, it will have to be very narrowly defined. It probably will just have to be focused on, on the corporate side, a, a corporate tax cut, maybe the, uh, the doubling of the standard uh, deduction for individuals, but not, you're not going to be able to do the kind of tax uh, reform on the individual side. It just There isn't the time to get it done um, it, before year end or in early uh, 2018. So the kind of tax cut that I think would have to get the size that would need to, to be able to be passed probably wouldn't materially alter the um, economic outlook. Likewise, if it weren't to be passed, I wouldn't be marking down my forecast significantly. I think what Tom said was really important, which is that the, the regulatory benefits and the relief that companies have felt and the fact that companies continued this year to be engaged even without tax cuts, I think speaks to the underlying health of the U.S. economy even without additional fiscal stimulus. Yeah. Now, um, to change gears slightly uh, as we get towards the end, this panel is about what is next for markets. Um, and Tom, I know that you have been very vocal on something that has uh, sort of taken shape as perhaps the next big thing. Uh, and that, of course, would be Bitcoin. Richard, I won't make you uh, say the words here. <laughs> Explain $25,000 yes, uh, $25,000 price target on Bitcoin right now is trading about 6000 But can you just sketch out sort of what this means for markets, for investors? Is cryptocurrency an asset? Is, is it, you know, kind of what is it and, and what are people saying about it? Yes, it's, um, it's, it's actually all the above. I think cryptocurrencies are a very important technology. I mean, it's a huge revolution in terms of uh, decentralized control. It's, I, I, I mean, the best way to describe it is it's, it's biomimicry finally in the technology industry, you know, a proper structure for man maintaining encryption and security. But it's also because of the nature of blockchain and essentially an asset class. And I think, you know, this year has proven Bitcoin is uncorrelated to equities, gold, interest rates, commodities, hedge fund. It's an important security, I think, for investors to own. And in terms of valuation, oddly, it's following Metcalf's law, you know, George Gilder's original concept that if you just modeled something as simple as square the number of users plus transaction value, it's explained 94% of Bitcoin this year. So using a 90% deceleration of both factors next year gets you to 6,000 by mid-18 and, you know, basically we're saying Bitcoin's going to hit a wall and it's still going to be worth 6,000. Um, now, Michelle, we were talking a little bit backstage just about, you know, clients are asking about this stuff. Um, so, you know, what are you guys saying or what are they saying? Well, you know, 
I, I think that there's just a, a lot of um, questions that, that people are sort of recognizing that there is this potentially new asset class. What might it what might it mean? Um, you know, I, I think we're trying to figure out from, a, from an economic standpoint, what might it mean? What might it mean for, for central banks and, and monetary policy going forward? Yeah, you know, we've, we've talked about uh, in an environment at some point perhaps when the economy's turned down and we have to think about negative interest rates, is that an environment where cryptocurrencies really then take off? Because of course that's, uh, that might be an avenue, that's when we've seen a, a lot of interest in, uh, pick up. So I mean there's a lot of really interesting um, conversations to, to be had. I don't think anybody necessarily uh, knows the answers, but I think right now what you've got is a whole scale uh, searching around of enlightenment. Everybody's trying to, to, to really come to grips with, with how big and what this really means. Yeah, all right. Well to leave it there. Uh, Richard, Michelle, and Tom, thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.